The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Isabel Hardman asks how Ed Miliband became the power behind Keir Starmer's labour, Matthew Paris says we've lost interest in our dependencies, Graham Thompson mourns the loss of the B-side, and Caroline Moore reads her notes on war memorials. Up first, Isabel Hardman. Keir Starmer's early leadership was defined by the expulsion of his predecessor. Jeremy Corbyn is no longer a Labour MP and will not be a Labour candidate at the next election. But now another former party leader is quietly defining Starmer's leadership. This week, Ed Miliband, the Shadow Climate Secretary, caused outrage by suggesting that rich countries should pay aid to nations worst hit by climate change. Miliband's influence extends far beyond his brief. Resentment has been brewing among Labour frontbenchers about just how much Starmer seems to listen to him. After all, he presided over one of Labour's worst election results in 2015, a memory that has faded only because Corbyn did even more damage four years later. He's the elephant in the room, says one party figure. Miliband seems to be everywhere. His ideas crop up in many of Labour's core policy proposals and he's present in the leader's office quite often too. He just kind of hangs around a lot, says one aide. There is a split in Starmer's office between those who like the very affable and thoughtful Miliband and want to hear his ideas, and those who like having him around but think he's often quite wrong. In Miliband's defence, he gets access because he works for it. He will beaver away with his team to draw up whatever is asked of him. As a result, Starmer's ideas have a distinctly Miliband flavour to them. Labour's big pitch at the party's autumn conference was for a state-backed energy company. The conference slogan was a fairer, greener future, which many dismissed behind the scenes as sounding, as one insider put it, like a washing-up liquid advert. There was a row too over changing the party's logo from a red rose to a green bloom. It's not just Starmer who gets his ideas from Miliband. The former Labour leader is still pally with Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves. He was one of the people pushing her to commit to £28 billion a year of spending to tackle climate change. He thinks this cost of living crisis and the way the public relied on the state during Covid has proved everything he was saying 10 years ago, says an MP who has warily observed Miliband for many years. He thinks now is his time. The other reason Miliband gets such a hearing is because of Starmer's lack of vision. It's difficult to pin down what the leader stands for, other than competence. Speak to those who work with Starmer and they'll happily tell you about his work ethic. He's a professional, says one frontbencher. He wants a paper, he wants a policy properly written through, so he can read it overnight before we have the meeting. The meeting starts on time and finishes on time. He was genuinely quite offended by the way Boris conducted himself. Another ally says, Keir doesn't think like a politician thinks like a CEO. That means he puts a lot of faith in the people who work for him and the shadow cabinet. He has insisted that frontbenchers get training on how to run a government department. Only Yvette Cooper and Miliband have experience as secretaries of state. 
This commitment to professionalism is all well and good, but it's not real substance. Starmer relies heavily on his director of strategy, Deborah Mattinson, to survey focus groups. But one senior figure complains. She goes out to these groups and asks, what do you want us to say? The problem is that you can't get your strategy from a focus group. You can test positions or language on the focus group, but you can't take ideas from them. Then there's Peter Hyman, a former Tony Blair speechwriter who left politics to go into teaching, but is back to work on the manifesto. It is difficult to discern which of his blizzard of often conflicting ideas will make it in. If Starmer doesn't have a set of guiding principles, then Miliband will readily provide his own. The problem is that the electorate has rejected his principles once before. It's unlikely that when voters start to look properly at Labour, rather than simply looking away from the Tories, they'll find Milibandism any more palatable than last time. That was Isabel Hardman. Next, Matthew Paris. Let nobody say Liz Truss achieved nothing in her Mayfly days at Downing Street. She gave away the vast British Indian Ocean Territory, the islands and the seas around them, known as the Chagos Islands. To be more precise, in talks with Mauritian officials while in New York, she set in train negotiations with Mauritius over a handover next year. Exempted from any such agreement will be the island of Diego Garcia, nominally British but for all practical purposes under the control of the United States, who maintain a huge and important military base there, probably torturing people, but we wouldn't know, or if we do, wouldn't be so impertinent as to complain. The Chagos decision is more melancholy than tragic. A complete capitulation by Britain in the face of repeated rulings against us in international law. The necessary surrender, for that is what it is, received only scant attention in our news media. We British just aren't interested in our overseas dependencies anymore. We see them as an embarrassment and a nuisance. No wonder the Falkland Islands Legislative Assembly took fright, issuing an immediate statement that the move to cede the Chagos Islands had no bearing on the status of the Falklands and warning the government of Argentina not to read anything into it. Technically, that's true. Britain's position that there will be no negotiations with Buenos Aires without the Falkland Islanders' consent remains unchanged. But in Port Stanley, it will be noticed that the Chagossians' future appears to be being negotiated bilaterally by Britain and Mauritius. Nothing has been said about consulting the Chagossians themselves, probably now more numerous than Falklanders. Today, they're scattered between Mauritius, Britain and the Seychelles, many living in poverty after their shameful expulsion from their own lands and seas by a 1960s Labour government cap in hand to Washington. This is how we treat our overseas subjects when they get in the way. The Falkland Islanders' alarm has received equally scant attention in the British media. We don't seem to care anymore. Witness our government's insulting treatment last week of the heads of government of our overseas territories postponing until further notice a London meeting with ministers of the Joint Ministerial Council. This convocation of huge importance to all 14 territories, was called off with only days' notice. Many of the overseas representatives had already set out. It's a long journey from Pitcairn Island or Tristan da Cunha. Some had arrived. 
that the minister responsible, Zach Goldsmith, had just been appointed and was off to Egypt for the COP27 conference was the reason given. This will not do. The date of COP27 was settled months in advance. Our overseas territories could have been asked earlier to postpone or another minister could have been substituted and briefed. And the cancellation should have been accompanied by the most profound and public apology on the part of HMG and a new date fixed firmly. One is left hoping that at least our visitors had their travel expenses refunded and the costs were not borne by their tiny budgets. This has ended up looking like and being taken as a snub, but it's worse than that. It was not even a calculated snub, and if there's one thing worse than being insulted on purpose, it's being insulted by mere inattention. It's quite possible somebody at this end simply forgot until too late. The truth, one fears, is that the matter was not considered of any importance. I write as an old colonial. At least to a degree, I must be wary of my own instincts in this field, which are tinged with nostalgia and indignation. In boyhood and youth, living in some of these former colonies, I've seen Westminster caving in all the way down the line, usually after insisting for years that they never would. Often it was unavoidable, and sometimes it has been for the best. Decolonization has usually been the only way. But this should not be taken as a general rule, losing interest in what we have just because we've lost what we had. France keeps a proud and iron grip on her slew of small possessions across the globe. Most of our residual overseas territories remain British because their inhabitants want them to be British, and we have a responsibility to these people. I believe, for instance, that a 99-year leaseback arrangement with Argentina over the Falklands could be turned to the islanders' own interests. It's sad they've been cut off from their own continent. But unless or until they are overwhelmingly persuaded, we must defend their right to say no. Diego Garcia, now inhabited only by military-related personnel, has gone beyond recall. And as Britain has power there, only de jure and no longer de facto, we do best, alongside Mauritius, with whom, by treaty, we're bound to agree, to sell the island and its military base to Washington for a massive sum. The Chagossians, however, remain our responsibility, betrayed by Britain in one of the more disgraceful, if minor, episodes in our 20th century foreign policy. Will they get a vote? Do many of them actually want to return to their islands? How will the switch to Mauritian sovereignty affect theirs and their descendants' rights, granted in 2002, to claim British citizenship? It's all a mess. Colonial policy in the Caribbean and Atlantic is also a mess. The corrupt British Virgin Islands need sorting out. The Cayman Islands' status as a tax haven should not be sustainable. Some of the other islands are getting restless. And there's been a creeping US tendency to think the Pentagon controls Ascension Island. I could go on. But who in modern Britain would be listening? A Guardian correction to its Chagos report is telling. This article was amended. Diego Garcia is in the Indian Ocean, not the Pacific Ocean. That was Matthew Paris. Next, Graham Thompson.
Paul Weller releasing a collection of solo B-sides is cause for mild celebration. After all, the Jam are one of the great B-side bands. Tales from the Riverbank, The Butterfly Collector, Liza Radley. All A-list songs relegated to the subs bench. Remember the B-side? That bijou creative safe space which didn't merely permit but positively encouraged artists to write parallel narratives of exploration, experimentation and extemporization. I still remember the first B-side I fell in fascination with. It was called Christ versus Warhol, a queasily psychedelic, willfully odd indulgence on the wrong side of the teardrop explodes, determinedly poppy, passionate friend. I felt like the protagonist in Gregory's Girl, which to love, the athletic blonde in the shorts or the arty brunette in the beret. No need to decide, of course, I could swoon over both. For the artist, the B-side was a second date where you could casually drop a couple of French novels into the conversation. It was an invitation for the unveiling of a hinterland. Moi? Not just a pretty face, darling. Extras and hidden Easter eggs in a DVD, a new prologue, that hastily rewritten first act. None match the perfect charm and functionality of the B-side. A prime example of the medium creating the message. Its existence was solely due to the physical requirements of the 45 RPM single and the inarguable logic that a disc with two sides needed coverage on both. Like a coin. Heads you win, tails is anybody's guess. We should define terms. A classic B-side couldn't be an album track shunted onto a single or an instrumental remix. It had to be a new song, previously unreleased, ideally a little outre. For some bands, it was a chance for the drummer to score a lead vocal. Others could showcase their own compositions, rather than those by their puppet masters. While producers Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman ruthlessly constructed the suite's glam-pop A-sides, the band were airily permitted to handle the B-sides. The effect was like listening to two different groups, or at least like getting to know a deeper side of a good friend. The Monkees had a similar deal. For other bands, the B-sides served notice of a coming shift in direction. Listen to it's getting late in the evening, the flip of Life's What You Make It by Talk Talk, and hear an augury that they would be shortly be weighing anchor to drift off to some unmapped foreign shore. Sometimes the B-side was so persuasive it won promotion. Rod Stewart's Maggie May began life as a poor relation to reason to believe until disc jockeys spotted its hit potential and started playing it incessantly. The same thing happened with Gloria Gaynor and I Will Survive. Hot Chocolate's You Sexy Thing was a B-side flop turned smash. The B-side wasn't pop or rock. It was artistically democratic. Everybody needed one. Like the B-movie, it was often regarded as second-rate, disposable, often with good reason, yet one can take the measure of an artist via the quality of their off-cuts. The great practitioners include the Beatles, but not the Stones. The Clash, The Cure, New Order. Oasis, whose best songs... Acquiesce, the master plan, were B-sides, while Talk Tonight and Half the World Away repositioned Noel Gallagher as a barstool balladeer. Buzzcocks, Susie and the Banshees, Elvis Costello, Pet Shop Boys, Prince, The Smiths, Suede, The Jam. Which brings us back to Weller. Will of the People is a carefully curated collection of 31 tunes, many only ever previously issued as B-sides. Several are very good. While the raft of remixes and alternate takes is mostly of interest only to diehards, much here honours the primary role of the B-side in allowing us to eavesdrop on an artist gambling freely. 
We get Weller as the pastoral jazzer on Golden Leaves and the Bowie fanboy on Landslide. We get him funky on Mother Ethiopia and folksy on Oranges and Rosewater. His take on the Beatles' birthday reminds us that the B-side was always game for a rowdy cover version. It's hard not to talk about such things in the past tense, since the single stopped being a predominantly physical artefact, though they're still out there. The B-side, as distinct from the bonus track as a tiger from a tomcat, has become an endangered species. In its pomp, it spoke to a freedom and mischief in music making, which is less apparent in the age of streaming, when every song is a potential single. All ten tracks from the Arctic Monkeys' new album, The Car, entered the streaming chart in the week of its release. Not much fun, really. The B-side was fun. That was Graham Thompson. And finally, Caroline Moore. This Sunday, in my village of Etchingham, East Sussex, we will gather around our war memorial. It is a fine monument, designed by Sir Herbert Baker, with the names of the dead inscribed around an octagonal base. There are no famous names upon it. Indeed, there is only one commissioned officer, a second lieutenant, who had once been a commercial clerk, working from the age of 14. The rest were mostly young farm labourers. The oldest, aged 44, had been a domestic chauffeur. The rural working classes leave little in the way of records. These men left no voices of the Great War. But though mute, they are not inglorious, and one of the most eloquent writers of the era spoke on their behalf. On the 28th of April, 1920, in rain, sleet and bitter wind, Rudyard Kipling made the speech at the unveiling of the memorial. It seems fitting to read the speech out again this year to mark the restoration of the memorial with money from the War Memorial's Trust. The Clipsum stonework has been cleaned and repaired and is golden again as it was on that rainy day in 1920. The work was done by Gordon Newton. War memorials, old and new, have been his life's calling. The passion of men such as Newton for these silent stones may seem strange to a modern generation. Nowadays, museums and exhibits are expected to be interactive, immersive and hands-on. Labels bombard visitors with information and exhortations, preach and jabber. Kipling knew the strength and importance of silences. As a master craftsman of words, he urged the importance of cutting back, deleting and cutting back again. His speech for the unveiling is moving partly because of what it does not say and his awareness of what words cannot do. We all know that grief cannot be cheated, he begins, starting with a bleak negative. And behind the words that follow, unspoken, are the dark reservoirs of his own grief. I have just come back from the invaded areas of France, he says, and evokes the devastation, remnants of woods and forests, burnt and gassed and shelled into fringes of a few withered sticks like twisted hop poles from which England has been saved. What he does not say aloud is that his son, Jack, had been killed in that part of France, aged 18, in his first action. Jack's body was not found in Kipling's lifetime, 
the man who could have no gravestone for his own son understood the importance of a physical memorial to underlay his tireless work for the War Graves Commission. You see, we shall never have any grave to go to. Kipling was responsible for the epitaph known unto God, inscribed upon the tomb of the unknown soldier. Kipling urges his hearers of 1920 to probe the silence. Such reticence was natural during the war, but there is a danger that in peace we may neglect to learn and understand the full stretch of their heroism. Etchingham, he says, has done wisely in making speed to erect her memorial while the tales are fresh and undimmed, that it may serve as a witness to the dread reality of them. A hundred years later, the tales are dimmer, but the memorial stands. The silence of these stones may now be deeper, but silence has its own power. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join me again next week. Bye.